we search for equity in landscape and architecture and social engagement so that people are able to feel empowered in their environment. Some people have said that what we create are social monuments rather than sculptural monuments, and that the work is about an architecture of engagement rather than an architecture of formal description. Welcome to Archonnect Sessions One to One. I'm Amelia, and this week I'm speaking with two key members of Snowheda founding partner Craig Dykers, and partner-slash-managing director Elaine Molinar. Elaine has been at Snowheda since the very beginning, when they first won the Alexandria Library Competition in 1989. And she and Craig spoke to me about the firm's impressive cache of international cultural projects, as well as their office culture and plans for the future. As partners both professionally and personally, Craig and Elaine also shared their advice for working alongside your significant other. Well, Elaine Molinar and Craig Dikers, thank you both so much for joining us on One to One. Elaine, I'd like to start with you, if you don't mind. I wanted to talk a little bit about how you first got into architecture. I've, I've heard and, and read in various interviews and other accounts of Snowheda's origin story that you were studying architecture at uh, University of Texas, Austin, but before that were initially interested in studying classical dance and you were studying uh, ballet. I was wondering what initially prompted you to transition into architecture? Ah, well, I guess like many other architects, you know, as a kid, I I had a a wide variety of interests and still do and spent a lot of my time drawing and making things. But then I I became a very serious uh, ballet student and uh, performer. And then I when I went off to college, I went to Texas Christian University in Fort Worth, which had a very uh, good dance program, although that wasn't my focus anymore, any longer. But I was taking a a lot of uh, art and art history and architectural history classes at TCU and a technical drawing class. And my drawing teacher was an architect and suggested that I look into it as a profession because he thought I had an aptitude for it. At the same time, I was uh, spending quite a lot of time at the Kimball Art Museum, which is not far from the campus. You know, either just going walking about the museum, enjoying their collection or playing soccer on the lawn with my roommates. And I found it to be a really, really pretty inspiring place and had never really thought of architecture as a profession until until that time, you know, when I was taking classes and then experiencing a great piece of architecture. And I thought, well, if, if that's what architecture is, then I'd like to do that. But, you know, I think ballet and dance are as complicated three-dimensionally as architecture, and they both deal with a sense of rhythm and time. So and and the human form. So it would seem natural progression for some people. Yeah, absolutely. There are a lot of the same principles at play in design and in choreography and in dance and the way you interact with space. Yeah, aside from any kind of overly pithy statements about dance and architecture being one and of the same, I think there is something very specific about being a dancer and developing a sense of space and a sense of movement in a space that could be drawn upon to actually design better spaces and have a better idea of how people might end up using them, especially in terms of perhaps maybe crowd rhythms or such like that. And so, Elaine, you started working with Snowheda pretty much from the beginning with the first project. I I wanted to have both maybe you and Craig could go back and forth and kind of explain how you both met and how you began working together. Well, uh, we met originally at university. We were the same age, um, although we were in different uh, levels of education at the time because of Elaine's focus on ballet prior to coming to the architecture school. I also studied a number of other things, including art and medicine. 
But uh, one day I, I walked into a class uh, that a professor was teaching who was a friend of mine, and I, I saw Elaine, and it was just one of those uh, moments like you read about in novels where everything stops and you see this person and you know this is the one. So <laughs> for me, it was uh, it was one of those times. I, I'm not sure how that happens, but it did. And I had to borrow some money, $5 from a friend to ask her out for coffee because I had nothing in my pocket at the time. It spent it all on architectural um, uh, studio supplies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we actually didn't really start dating at, at that time. Craig finished school and went off to California. And a, a couple of years later, I was doing a professional residency program. And I just, by coincidence, landed in the uh, office where Craig is working in Los Angeles. And then we started dating it shortly after that. And then we moved to Norway together after we designed the Library of Alexandria in Los Angeles. And we started the company together with our Norwegian friends who we met in Los Angeles at the same time. So it was a, a long process. And I guess we've been together for, depending on where you start counting, over 30 years. Yeah. I mean, you know, so I was just more or less freshly out of school when when I began working with the uh, Alexandria Library on the competition and then later on as as a project. You know, so for me, we were, you couldn't really call us a firm at that time. We were just, uh, we had formed our studio together based around this this project. And for me, I, I think the atmosphere in our studio was very much like the kind of atmosphere you find in schools, in studios in school. You know, it was, it was very relaxed. It was, we were very, uh, we were like explorers finding our way together. There's a, a New Yorker piece that I'm sure you both remember, but uh, there's a line quoted in it around the early times of before Snohetta was Snohetta, but just the kind of initial group that came together to work on the Alexandria project that was described as perhaps more interested in drinking beer than designing architecture, which I'm sure, Craig, you might have <laughs> differing feelings about after something like that gets to print. And you're like, well, maybe that isn't exactly on point. But at the same time, I think that Craig, maybe you can, and Elaine, maybe you can speak to clarify this a little bit, but there is something about what does does exist on the books about Soheda, this initial period being very much a kind of out of necessity and a collectivist attitude, doing what you feel you need to do at the time without overtly considering how that might translate into an actual firm or an actual business and kind of running things by the seat of your pants in some in some ways. So I wanted to ask about that initial stage. Why at that point, first of all, why you th if you think there's a reason why the firm kind of first got pigeonholed as being called a Norwegian firm when, as you just explained, the initial project was done in Los Angeles with a variety of people, not all of which, or perhaps a minority of which were actually from both Los Angeles and then some from Norway. So why do you think that there's this kind of association with the firm, aside from the name, with overt Norwegian architecture? Well, that's two questions. So maybe, Elaine, you, you start off sure. about uh, working together in, in, in Alexandria and our character there, perhaps. I mean, I'll jump in if you, and then you can fill in. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, uh, first I'll respond. It's a lot of things there in that comment. So the, the notion of drinking beer really was an alluding to the idea of socializing, um, trying to deal with very complex issues that were in a number of people's minds at the time. And we still work that way. So when when you rely on groups of people to work together, you need to find ways to be empathetic, to let go, to um, to explore new avenues uh, and new cultural perspectives. So the beer kind of helps loosen up a little bit at times when you're struggling. Well, and you know, <laughs> when you're 
at that age, there's nothing about drinking, sitting around drinking beer and discussing ideas that sounds un- particularly unusual. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I think that that was kind of a, a quick way to say that, or to kind of romanticize the beginning of the firm of like, as if not everyone is perhaps kind of enmeshed in this culture at the time. We still have a beer tap in the yeah. office. Excellent. In every office or just in the just New York Just in the just New York about. office, yeah. yeah. And I think, you know, the, the Library of Alexandria, just as an idea, is such a mythical thing. Uh, you know, it's so big. The magnitude of it is daunting and incredible. And, and I think, um, I don't think any of us thought that would ever come to reality. You know, I, I, I think uh, also one has to recognize that a part of our understanding of the world of architecture and the built environment and the world of landscape design and design in general has to do with opening up doors to better understand who you are as a person and how you fit into society as a whole. In general, in the academic world, that's placed into a very specific type of understanding that generally is scientific or academic. And we're trying to suggest that although those roots through to understanding are important, we also have to to understand that we're not perfect creatures as human beings. We are irrational on many levels. And perhaps, you know, when you uh, relax a little and allow your irrational aspects to come forward, you better understand who you are and who we are as humans, which should, in a sense, affect how we design. And that's really where we began. And I think we're still working with that today. And that has quite a lot to do with um, politics. So your question about the Norwegian-ness of our office is a very political one because the name of a country is a political manifestation. It's sometimes a cultural one, but more often political. And we've been trying to suggest that large numbers of people can work together despite their cultural backgrounds or political differences to create something meaningful. And in terms of social policy, that's a very big issue in both Norway and the United States. Norway works with the issue of hegemony, whereas the United States works with issues of extreme diversity. So uh, they, they, we, we come at, at these issues from different directions, but they both have the same goal. Both countries have democratic heritage that go back uh, co- quite some time and, uh, and represent in some ways the, the leaders in, in this type of political thinking. You know, Norway is also a very small country. And, and as, as I mentioned earlier, the, just the idea of the Alexandria Library is enormous. So I, I think a small group of people located in a small country undertaking a task of huge significance is a good story. Yeah, it's hard to it's hard to ignore it, especially because despite the fact that there's uh, over at this point, and of course, it didn't wasn't always that way, but over 150 people working across Noheda from all different backgrounds and different countries and with now firms all over the world. So I wanted to ask how the progression of creating different offices kind of developed, whether there was a plan always to expand to whichever city you had a major project in, or whether there are cities around the world where you will, regardless of whether active work is happening, you hope to expand to in the future. Well, I I think at some point, architecture really started becoming more and more obviously global. And that is, I mean, architects could build anywhere, could work almost anywhere. They weren't limited to working on their home turf. That became more and more common. And as our practice grew, we sort of worked outside of Norway quite a lot. Norway, again, like I said earlier, is quite small. The market is small. We we, We wanted to be close to our projects. We've always been close to our projects. So that's the challenge of working in a global 
context is if you're not careful, you'll become remote to everything. You won't have any any home. So um, we tried to make homes as we worked in different locations, and we began to know people more closely in each of the places we worked. So is there a place uh, elsewhere in the world that you hope to kind of establish some basin? <laughs> well, you don't think we don't think of it that way. I, I don't think we're on a campaign to create to studios. Uh, yeah. um, I remember some time ago, I used to joke that, that uh, if we're not careful in the very near future, there will only be four architectural firms in the entire world, and they'll each employ over 250,000 people and have <laughs> 60 offices worldwide. You know, there, there was, it was, we were near to the demise of the smaller architecture practice. Fortunately, that didn't come to fruition. And actually, the, the onset of the internet has made it much easier for smaller companies to survive. Also, clients have seen the challenge of working with companies that are, are too large to have any real intimacy in their work. So in that sense, we're not going around thinking, let's blanket the world. It's just when things come our way and, and they seem interesting and they seem appropriate and we feel good about where we are, then we might consider bringing people there and, and starting a relationship. That's, I would say, more a better definition of that uh, idea. So, Craig, specifically, at which office do you find yourself spending most of your time, and, and how do you both manage communication across the different offices? Well, there is a, a joke that I tend to be at home wherever I am as long as I'm on the back of the bus. Uh, so, you know, there's uh, referring to traveling what is that? all the time. Uh, oh, so not something like with delinquency for the back of the bus, but more just for... Like you're going on with for the ride. Yeah, a little, a little <laughs> of both. Yeah, there's a lot of travel involved in, in, in the architectural world today, especially when you're working with cultural projects. Even when they're in your backyard, those projects might take you further afield than you, you imagined so that you can find precedent, meet people, do research, things like that. But uh, generally speaking, uh, Elaine and I are in New York most of the time and we travel back and forth to Europe. Likewise, our Norwegian colleagues travel to New York from time to time. We also exchange staff when we can. Currently, right now, we have one of the architects, oh, Norwegian, from the Oslo office who is uh, spending a couple of years here in New York with us. We've done that in the past, and, and we hope to continue doing that in the future. Just about every year, we, we uh, try and get together as many people from all offices as possible to have a kind of a retreat. Most of the time, that takes the form of a hike up the Snohetta Mountain in Norway. Very appropriate. Yes. <laughs> and that's, that's just a great way to just connect and, and have social time together. What about the actual design of the offices, especially as we kind of move in this parallel direction of being both capable of being anywhere at once, uh, while also having this more decentralized office possibilities, while at the same time experiencing, especially in perhaps the tech industry, this renewed interest in the kind of almost pedagogical design of office spaces towards getting a certain atmosphere or a certain culture developed? There are two main features in all of our studios that are really clearly important. One is the social space, having a large enough space that's dedicated to uh, unprogrammed activities. One of the most important being having being able to have lunch together. So we have large, long um, lunch tables. So we eat together every day. That seems like an insignificant detail, but it is, in fact, a very, very important thing that we do. It's a, a way of just bonding and connecting. And uh, you might have a conversation with someone you've never worked with before or, you know, so it's, it's a really good way of just cross-pollinating every day. The other uh, feature is our model shop. And in fact, Craig and I are sitting in our model shop right now uh, with a, a sign on the door outside that says on air. So you can't come in. <laughs> 
<laughs> is it a neon sign? Yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, it, it has a lot of, uh, it has power tools, has laser, laser cutters and 3D printers and, and uh, uh, spray painting cabinets and, and drills and, and things like that. We build a lot of things with our hands. So it's really important to be able to do that in our studio. And as part of an overall atmosphere in our office, it's, it, I think it needs to be a little bit dirty and not precious a place where you could get your hands dirty and, and feel comfortable experimenting. And this is a uh, same issue we tried to draw into our thinking of guests, because a studio isn't just about yourself and your own work. Many people come in and out of the studio each day who are either clients or engineers or other professionals that we work with, artists sometimes. So the way you enter the studio is quite unique. In New York, and it's very similar in, in Oslo, you don't enter into a reception area. So we don't have the typical receptionist desk with some chairs and some images of our work. In fact, in, in the New York office, you enter into the kitchen. There's no one there to greet you. And there's it's not very easy to see the work on the walls. Um, it's not sort of surrounding the the guest entry. So you come through the kitchen and you move into the meeting and eating room and you have to kind of make your way through to eventually find somebody that can answer a question if you've never been to the studio before. So that pr promotes a sense of commitment that is a little unusual in a traditional office space. So all of these ways of thinking in, in terms of socialization, sense of ownership, support, building of societies are all built into the way our studio is designed. We also that, have a disco oh, ball in all of our studios. A disco ball? Yes. <laughs> what purpose does that serve? Well, we often have parties in our in our own space. <laughs> so this is this is a uh, a a mandatory work rave of sorts. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sounds great. Within that culture, then, is there a specific space for the graphic design work that you that the firm does, uh, or is it more just everyone melding all together? Everyone sits to, sits in the same space, and and it's not studio culture or discipline culture. So you may not sit next to the same person that's working on the job with you. You may be sitting next to a branding or graphic design person. Currently, uh, the biggest bulk of that effort is is carried out in Norway. We're starting to establish uh, that here in, in America too. We hope for that to to flourish in the future. I ask specifically because I'm really fascinated by Snohetta's work uh, for the Norwegian banknotes, the banknote design. I was wondering if you could both explain maybe uh, kind of the beginnings of the design process for that particular project and what your initial ideas and goals were going into it. In some ways, it started very much like any other project, whether it were a landscape or architecture project, in the sense that there were created a series of charrettes where we came together as groups. Some of us were graphic designers, others were not. And we all tossed ideas uh, around to, to see where the project might go. It was actually an extremely complicated project. And ultimately, the branding and graphic designers were truly the only people who could carry it out. So even the architects had some difficulty in, in understanding all the components that were necessary to build into the design. But uh, the design came forward in, this, uh, in a way which is common in our office and that a narrative was built. Uh, around a, a kind of a theory as to what a banknote should be. In this case, uh, it was proposed that since these are objects that you carry around with you regularly, they should be more than simply representations of, of some kind of history or representations of some kind of place, rather direct in their character. Instead, they could be a, a work of art. And uh, the banknotes themselves are built around two particular, two or three particular ideas. One is the ancient art of uh, mosaic 
and how mosaic is used in, in, in the same way that contemporary technology uses pixels. And we wanted to recognize that money is both a very old form of technology and also a very new one using both new in a digital technology, but also a kind of very primitive idea that it's a piece of paper that was one time printed. I think there is also the idea that paper, the use of paper money is is becoming less and less uh, common. Yeah, less and less common as as we tend to pay, you know, with credit cards or online now. And this, the second idea that we had was to create something that could um, exemplify the theme that was provided in the competition, which is the theme of water and the relationship of the nation of Norway to its coastline and water resources, which is a very important part of its history and geography. So um, the, the images on the notes are, are actually sort of landscapes that you might see across a body of water. And as you go up in denomination from the lowest to the highest denomination, the wind speed in the image increases. And as the wind gets higher, it's harder to see exactly what you're looking at, as you might have experienced yourself if you've ever been around a lake or the ocean during high winds. So um, all of these images together create a kind of changing landscape across water during wind conditions. And when you lay them all side by side, they create an, an, a unique picture. So all the, all the denominations laid in a, in a horizon show a larger horizon of different colors, pixelated like an ancient mosaic. And all of that really doesn't mean anything in the end because they just look great. <laughs> they look good. So, you know. I definitely agree with that. I'm very excited to see this actually in the flesh. I just I think it's so fascinating when you relate it back to the idea of of the boundaries in between land and, and water, and especially in the relationship to the National Opera and Ballet in Norway, in Oslo. And there's specific accounts, and personally, I've never actually been able to go there, but I've, I've read accounts of people who, in ascending the roof of the building, can kind of get that drastic experience of uh, boundaries both between the roof and the sky, but also of seeing or looking out over the water and the meeting point at the harbor of uh, water and the actual and the land. And something like National Opera and Ballet uh, is obviously a huge cultural institution and, and one that can't help but contribute to whatever the national culture uh, is being created as, as at that time. And Snowhead is involved with countless projects such as this. The Alexandria Library is kind of a precursor of having this these huge cultural projects. And I'm wondering in the case and this pursuit of having an international practice and one that isn't concerned with pursuing specific projects in specific areas, but nonetheless one that does operate worldwide, how you see your work as creating these national cultural icons. I think our goals have remained essentially this the same. And projects like the opera, I think, illustrate those goals very clearly in that we search for equity in landscape and architecture and social engagement so that people are able to feel empowered in their environment. Some people have said that what we create are social monuments rather than sculptural monuments, and that the work is about an architecture of engagement rather than an architecture of formal description. It's been a challenge for us to maintain that because there is a constant pressure to make architecture spectacular or overwhelming. And while we appreciate that in work, and at times it can be very useful, that's not the primary emphasis of our uh, thinking. So uh, you'll see when you look at the various projects, many of them don't feel exactly the same, or there's not an identifiable formal arrangement, because each social condition that's being uh, developed is is very different from, from another. Um, we shy away from the word icon or monument, and often it's not it's just not where 
our head is. And I guess you could say that if you have a focus or a target, let's just say that your client wants something or someone wants something from you that's monumental. The more you focus on trying to be monumental, the less successful it will be. Instead, we we like to look around that or past it, and that creates something more powerful and more meaningful ultimately. Yeah, I also think that, you know, while nothing is perfect, we try to make sure that everything is optimized. So a project, our work is going to be diverse rather than all about one or two main issues. I absolutely understand what you're saying. And I think that, that the proof is in the pudding, so to speak, is that you see the projects and they, they in no way do feel um, contrived to fit into some type of preconceived iconography or like set almost brand of architecture. But I think that nonetheless, doing projects like these, you can't help but contribute to a city or a nation's idea of what their cultural icons might be, even if that icon isn't an icon of the architectural style, but in historical time will come to be an icon of that national culture. And I'm thinking also of projects like the uh, entrance pavilion for the National September 11th Memorial Museum. Of course, something like that isn't ever going to be easily sketched by a child in like some drawing class. It's not going to be so easily rendered. But at the same time, of course, occupies this incredibly sensitive and emotionally resonant space and uh, area in the popular national consciousness. So it's kind of like this dance between knowing that you're not trying to create visual iconography necessarily, but you can't help but contribute to some type of national image. So I, I just wondering if you could comment on that a little bit more. Well, certainly our, our focus in that particular project uh, was finding our role on a complex site. This was a place where many architects were working to rebuild damaged location in, in the city and also try and repair the psyche of the city alongside that architectural work. So when we looked at the site as we first arrived, we first discovered that there was no site since the ground and, and the context had been bombed and, and uh, torn down. Even the ground was missing because during the cleanup, they had to dig all the way down to bedrock to uh, in, in create a, a site for building upon. So when we kind of recognized there was no physical place, we had to understand the temporal context of the World Trade Center site. And we saw that the skyscrapers, which leaped into the sky, were about the future. The memorials, which would dig into the earth, were in many ways about the past. We saw our role as exhibiting the present in time. So if the memorials reflected absence, our design would reflect presence. So everything about the building is trying to enhance your feeling that you're alive at this moment in time, and that you've forgotten about the future. Future, and you've forgotten about the past as so present in your moment as you're there. So um, the, the, these thoughts of past and future might linger in your thoughts, but they're not defining you as you experience our building. So the reflections of the building reflect people who visit it. They reflect the ambient light and the sunlight of the area that changes throughout the day. Uh, it's always a new uh, kind of um, character to the building each time you visit it. And that's exactly what we were looking for. And that's what we believe is part of the national identity to fulfill or to ensure that time continues forward. Whether it's um, terrible things that happen or joyful things that happen, we understand the continuity of time. Now to switch gears uh, slightly, Elaine, you are in particular a member of both the AIA and the Norwegian Institute of Architects. And I wanted to see if you had any either complaints or dirt 
or extremely positive experiences that you could relate from either experiences with the AIA or the NIA that could help inform the other. Because we, of course, we at ArcConnect and in architecture in the U.S. in general, there's something of a, I'd say, a, perhaps a love-hate relationship with an organization like the AIA that is kind of, a, of course, a necessity, but at the same time falls short to many architects attest. So I was wondering just structurally and how those organizations operate, do you see any ways that one might improve the other? Well, first, let me clarify. I am no longer a member of the the Norwegian Architecture Association since I have been away for so many years now. So now I exited and as a former member, in retrospect, what advice might you have? Well, I think the the NAL, as it's called, and the and the AIA have a lot in common. They are the same types of organizations, and I think one of the things that they do that I would consider positive and important is simply provide a common platform for professionals to meet and discuss and have their various events. But more important than the actual things that they do for me is just having that third space, I guess, if you will, that third place for professionals to meet. The Norwegian Architectural Association, I think it's important to realize, serves a much smaller constituency. The entire population of Norway is is under 5 million people, so the number of architects that it serves is is much smaller. Although it is um, a high percentage of society. Yes, it is. I think the, the NAL actually takes a more proactive role in its advocacy for immediate issues, such as establishing consistency in rules for competitions. They're quite vocal and they have a, quite a strong voice in that within the country of Norway. And also probably in their relationship with the EU mm-hmm. competition rules as well. They've also separated out a, a union for architects and employed architects. And that's a separate group in Norway that um, deals with employment uh, regulations and issues and, and represents staff in matters of employment. Yeah, it's more akin to a labor union. And mm. we don't have that in the United States. In terms of dirt, uh, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Please, go ahead. You know, I, the AIA has clearly struggles often to find its role. And so does the, um, uh, the NAL in Norway. It can very quickly become old uh, members club where people who have been there for quite some time or or have very specific conservative views, which means by conservative, I don't mean uh, politically, I mean simply not wanting to change a lot in, in within their organization. Those people uh, are protecting themselves. And, and, and so you, you can see in both organizations, I'm sure, a tendency toward a kind of um, feeling of wanting only to deal with those that you know almost like a family. On the other hand in Norway they're pretty they're pretty they're a little more flexible and dynamic mm-hmm. than here. The, in in the United States I would say I'm you know questioning the rise of the F is everywhere. <laughs> you know everybody's an F. I just kind kind of shocked by that. <laughs> what what particularly about it do you find shocking? The number of people that are are being held in in this regard which at one time was a relatively small number of people awarded a fellow uh, designation and now it's it's almost every, everyone that I know is is becoming a fellow and it's become uh, something more of a of an issue in terms of branding and identity for various people within the community. I'm, I'm just not quite sure how that's being controlled, but n- nobody seems to be talking about it. I mean, maybe it's maybe there are just so many more amazing architects today that we can just open the door on on making F's everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> so between or together, you both have had 
the better part of 30 years of, of working and establishing a personal relationship together. And of course, there this is not uncommon in architecture. You do have many couples or partners who are partners both in personal lives and in professional. Do you have any advice from the both of you that you would like to share with people who are either uh, actively pursuing that working relationship or considering perhaps starting a firm? Yeah. Well, first of all, it's it's a great thing to do. It's I think it's it's, it's a fun fascinating experience with the full spectrum of, you know, <laughs> just emotions and things that happen. But what I would say that I, I think we've benefited from is that while we may often be working together on the same thing at the same time, we also have fairly distinct roles within the, the firm that we have to fulfill in, in terms of managing our, our company. I think the joke is always have separate toilets. <laughs> <laughs> I think that was actually directly quoted in an interview with Melania Trump oh, yeah, about yeah. having the, like, the secret to a perfect marriage is separate bathrooms. Separate right. bathrooms, so, you know, <laughs> and now a third bathroom just in case. And uh, <laughs> you never know what will happen. I mean, we, 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 we sometimes joke that we're so busy that we don't have a time to, to be annoyed at right. each other. You know, we're just kind of constantly on the move. But it is an important question and one that I'm not sure that we've even ourselves mastered. No. Finding space for yourself outside of work that doesn't have to do with work is, is, you know, always going to be an issue. But that would be an issue whether you're married or not. Even if you were single, mm -hmm. um, you'd be looking for space outside of work to try and clear your mind. Well, yeah, I guess we, we try not to take work home with us too much. I think that's that's important. And we try not to bring home to work too much either, which is yeah. a, another challenge. <laughs> so what would be the office equivalent of separate bathrooms? <laughs> well, we, we don't sit immediately next to each other. Um, we don't have the same phone line. Um, we tend to work yeah. with slightly different people at different times. Right. Although there are anchor points along the way where there are groups where we are together and it's important that we're all together. And, uh, you know, even if you have separate bathrooms, you want to share the same dining room. So, you know. <laughs> Excellent continuation of the metaphor. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes we eat lunch together, but, but sometimes we don't, or usually we don't. And we're, we travel. We have slightly different travel schedules. It's also interesting. Well, as many people in the professional world like ours, they keep their last names. So Elaine has her last name. And it has been told to us that there are many people who have worked here for years and didn't know we were married. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it's a kind of a surprise to some people that we are. And actually, there are times where we have to explain that to, to mm -hmm. people. They wonder why we're being just a little bit more intimate than most people might be <laughs> in a meeting. <laughs> so... To round things off, we like to often ask our interview guests uh, whether they're reading or listening to anything that they'd like to share with the audience. Mm, yeah, sure. Mm -hmm. There's a few things out, right? Well, yeah. we just saw a movie that we loved, <laughs> we, and we rarely get to see movies. Do tell. It was Love and Friendship, the uh, Jane Austen um, story. It was one of her more comedic pieces, originally written as Lady Susan, so it, its name changed when it was uh, made into cinema, cinema, but that was quite fun uh, film. And Jane Austen is, is a wonderful um, author. And, and, you know, the power of storytelling is so important to us that uh, you can never find a new way to propel a thought. And authors are always so so um, powerful in, in, in how they, they move narrative that this interests us. I'm reading Noam Chomsky, a, a new piece about what it means to be... Um, 
to understand things. I can, um, I'm, I'm sorry, I don't exactly remember the title, but I think it was called something like Being Human. Yeah. I can look it up. I usually have more than one book going at once. I just started reading a book about the, the Manhattan Grid which is uh, really interesting. And I generally have a, a selection of books related to hobbies that I have. What might some of those be? Well, I, I have a, I'm learning taxidermy. So I tend to read books about that or about science and medicine. I recently bought a whole slew of books on Renaissance drawings as I draw a lot. And recently we created a small drawing studio uh, in the house um, so I'm, I'm, I'm floating through those, uh, at the moment. Is that at the same thing as the taxidermy studio as well? Yeah, we yeah, both we share, share that. that studio. We don't have a big enough apartment. It's New York, you know, you can't have, <laughs> so it's, it's amazing. And even that we have a studio in the house, which took some uh, hammering to make, we did that ourselves. There's uh, a lot of music I've been listening to lately too. And the other night I had a great experience where I was at a friend's restaurant and after hours, some DJ showed up. And we had a contest where each one of us started, you know, each, every song was each person had to go up and put in a song as a kind of competition. And that mm. went on for about three hours. And we were playing a lot of things from the 1970s and things I hadn't heard of before. So that's another kind of fun thing to do. I mean, I didn't know that Dizzy Gillespie played with um, a Cuban band uh, and a fellow named Machito. Um, that was quite interesting. And then there was a guy named Jimmy Smith from the 70s. There was an amazing band called the Ngozi Family, N-G-O-I-Z-E, which were a Zambian rock and roll band from 1971. Wow. That was amazing. What do they sound like? Like a good, hard-driving 70s rock and roll band, except <laughs> they had this weird Zambian, you know, kind of African tinge to it. Uh, you know, it was, a, it was a, a lot of drums that you wouldn't expect, um, but great guitar rhythms. And to imagine that it came from 1971 was rather shocking. The Ngozi family. Well, we will certainly look that up. And I got to ask one more question about the taxidermy. Is there a particular, is this small mammals, reptiles? What, what kind of area of taxidermy <laughs> or particular uh, yeah. particular yeah. <laughs> former uh, uh former staff yeah. enemies yeah that kind of thing definitely small small mice chickens rabbits but i i tend to prefer the small mice um, <laughs> that sounds like a architecture first year studio waiting to happen is instead of learning through model making you do uh <laughs> just only work with dead animals well thank you both so much for joining me on the podcast it was great to speak with both of you Thank you, Amelia. It's really nice talking to you. Thanks for listening to Archonnect Sessions one-to-one -one with Craig Dykers and Elaine Molinar. Danilo Voinov edits our podcast, and Matt Skillings composed the music. Myself and Paul Petrunia are the producers of one-to-one. -one. New episodes come out every Monday. You can subscribe to us on iTunes and Google Play Music. And if you like the podcast, please consider leaving us a review. We are at Arc Sessions on Twitter, and you can email us at connect at Thanks again for listening.